Warning! The following presentation contains information that might contradict what you have previously heard, or believed to be true, about how the human body works, and contains material that is not suitable for closed-minded individuals. Enjoy! Well, thanks for joining us again. We're going to continue looking at diet, nutrition, and metabolism. Once again, trying to answer the question, does it really matter what we eat? We have previously looked at topics related to carbohydrates, proteins, and lipids. And so when we talk about does it really matter what we eat, there is a, a yes and a no that comes along with this. So mostly does it matter what we eat? No, it doesn't really matter what we eat as long as we're meeting our nutrient demands for the day to keep our metabolism where we need the metabolism to be. But there are other chemicals and other compounds within the foods that we eat that might interfere with some of the metabolism and our ability to maintain homeostasis, our ability to keep optimal performance as we go throughout the day. If we're looking at this idea of chemicals that are going to disrupt our metabolism or disrupt our ability to maintain, maintain homeostasis, they're going to fall underneath three distinct classes. The first class is what's referred to as a metabolism disruptor. And so a metabolism disruptor is something that's going to change metabolic signals within the tissues, that's going to change signals between tissues, that's going to lead to what we reference as a non-communicable disease. Those are health issues that we do not transfer to other people within our lives that will impact our own body and our own ability to maintain homeostasis. And when we look at these metabolic disruptors and these non-communicable diseases, what we're really looking at is we're looking at changes in inflammation and changes in tissue functions as relates to distinct hormones. And the principal hormones that we talk about when it looks at the metabolic disruptors and non-communicable diseases are hormones like insulin, leptin, growth hormone, uh, testosterone, and androgens. When we look at these, what ends up happening is that when we consume foods that act as metabolic disruptors, we get changes in signals coming away from the brain that is going to change our food drive. That's going to want us to intake more food. When we intake more food, that's going to ultimately lead to more metabolic disruptors based off of the signals that are coming in. We'll take a look at a couple of them here in a bit. The other thing that happens is that as we start to increase more food intake and as we start increasing the amount of metabolic disruptors we're taking, it's going to change the way in which the liver is going to function, change the way in which the uh, skeletal muscle and the bones are going to function, change the way in which the adipose, the fat cells within the body are going to function. And what this does is this increases the amount of inflammation taking place, which reduces our responsiveness to insulin. The reduction in the response to insulin, <clears throat> the reduction in the response to insulin causes a change in the amount of uh, sugars in circulation within the bloodstream, which causes a change in way, way in which the tissues are going to function triggering even more inflammation. And what this does at the adipose cells 
is it's going to lead to what's referred to as differentiation. We're going to get new adipose cells coming into play. And those new adipose cells are going to change growth signals within adipose tissue and change the metabolism of lipids coming away from those adipose tissues. And this leads to what we refer to as hyperadiposity, having too much body fat, as well as dyslipidemia, that is irregular or unusual fat circulations or cholesterol circulations. It's also going to change the way in which the pancreas is going to function based off of its ability to regulate sugar levels by changing the way in which insulin and glucagon are going to go into circulation, as well as a secondary hormone known as GLP. Those hormones are going to lead to a uh, decreased ability for the tissues to take glucose in, particularly skeletal muscle, adipose, as well as the liver, which is going to lead to what we refer to as a hyperglycemia, high blood sugar, that is going to come along with hyperinsulinemia, too much insulin. The high blood sugar and the high insulin levels is what's going to cause the pancreas to wear itself out. And when it wears itself out over too long a period of time, is it will lead to what we usually reference as type 2 diabetes. Within the skeletal muscle and within the bones, when we have these metabolic disruptors taking place, what's up happening is we get irregular or unusual growth signals, which doesn't allow for bones to be maintained correctly and for skeletal muscles to grow in response to being stressed, in response to exercise. Now, we also will see changes from metabolic disruptors within the cardiovascular system, which can lead to uh, what's referred to as an increased peripheral resistance or high blood pressure, as well as a reduction in or reduced ability for the heart to move blood around, what's typically referred to as a reduced cardiac function or reduced cardiac output. All of those factors combine on themselves to lead to what's referred to as overfatness and or metabolic syndromes. When we look at overfatness and metabolic syndromes, we're not looking at somebody being obese. We're looking at this accumulative effect of high inflammation due to changes in metabolic functions that can come about from a metabolic disruptor. And so that's one way in which food intake can influence negatively our overall metabolic functions and our ability to have optimal performance or ability to have health. Another way of looking at this metabolic disruptor is looking at what's referred to as an endocrine disruptor. So an endocrine disruptor, unlike a metabolic disruptor, is gonna change the way in which hormones themselves are acting, not the way in which metabolism itself is functioning. And so what the endocrine disruptors are gonna do is it's gonna alter how a specific hormone or a class of hormones will function. And we'll take a look at a couple of disruptors in a second here. And so how will an endocrine disruptor function? An endocrine disruptor can function by acting as an agonist, meaning that it's going to sit onto the cell's receptors, the receptor for the hormone at the cells, and it's gonna cause a response as if the cell is being exposed to that endocrine itself or it can act as an antagonist. That means it's gonna block a hormone's action at a cell, 
by sitting in the hormones receptor and not allowing that hormone to do what it's supposed to do. Or it can cause a change in the response at the cells by causing increased expression of the receptor that we should see for the hormone or for other factors that come about from the hormone action itself at the tissues, such as increasing what's referred to as signal transduction. That is increasing the response the cells have to the hormone signals that it's getting normally. It can also lead to changes in genetic expression through what's referred to as an epigenetic alteration. That is where it binds down the DNA within the chromosomes and doesn't allow for specific genes to be active or it will take an inactive gene and turn it into an active gene. An endocrine disruptor can also stimulate additional hormones to be produced by the cells. So it's not going to necessarily increase the action of hormones, but it's going to cause more of that specific hormone to be produced by the body. It can also impact the way in which hormones are being transported around the body, both within the cell, meaning bringing that hormone into the cell itself to do what it's supposed to do, changing the way in which that hormone is being cleared from the body. So most hormones will get broken down over a uh, specific period of time. And that's one way in which the body is able to regulate the amount of hormones that are in the circulation at any point in time. And so what an endocrine disruptor could do is it could block the way in which we break down those hormones, either speeding up the clearance of the hormones, getting rid of hormones faster than what they should be getting rid of, or keeping them around longer than what they should be kept around for. It could also cause changes in the way in which the hormone itself is transported through the bloodstream by either increasing the binding proteins that are used to transport the hormones around or reducing the amount of binding proteins that are available to transport the hormones around, thereby keeping hormones in specific areas or speeding up the transport of hormones through the body. Or it could cause a change in what's referred to as the fate of the cells that the hormones are being interacting with, where it could cause changes in the differentiation of cells. It could cause cells that should be one type of cell to, to change to a different type of cell within that cell lineage. So all cells in the body will have the chance to become a cell within a line of cells. And based off of the hormones that are being expressed, that cell will differentiate within that line of cells to be a specific thing. So we hear this adage about like, oh, I'm going to exercise to turn my fat into muscle. Well, we can't do that. We can't turn fat into muscle because fat and muscle are two different types of cells. But what we can do is we can have changes in hormone expression that can cause changes in the type of skeletal muscle cell that we're going to cause growth in based off of some endocrine disrupting that takes place. Or we can cause cells to undergo their, their normal 
end-of-life signals, which we call scientifically apoptosis, where cells that should be getting signals to say, stay around, stay around, stay around, instead get a signal that says, you're no longer needed, all because of the endocrine disruption that can come about from some of the chemicals that we consume. The last way that we can have this disruption taking place is through toxins and poisons. And so when we look at endocrine disruption, we look at metabolic disruption, we look at toxins and poisons, it's all about dose and duration expressions. With toxins and poisons, we're going to have variable actions based off of the type of chemical that we're looking at. All chemicals have the chance to become a toxin or a poison based off of its ability to interfere with metabolism either by altering functions of enzymes within metabolism or by uh, altering the activation of enzymes within metabolism. Regardless of how it's going to alter enzymatic functions, chemicals that can't act as a toxin or a poison will cause some sort of cellular dysregulation to take place. For some of the toxins and poisons that also exhibit a metabolic disruptor effect, we'll also see mitochondrial dysregulation that will occur. One of the more commonly discussed toxins and poisons that we look at are things like cyanides. And what cyanide is going to do is it's going to interfere with the mitochondria and by interfering with the mitochondria, it's going to reduce the ability for the cells to get the energy molecules back that it needs, the ATP. And if the cell cannot get the ATP back, then it's not going to be able to do all of the metabolism it needs to do. And this is where we have to remember that the difference between a toxin and a poison is that a toxin is going to interfere with the metabolic functions but doesn't necessarily immediately cause death, whereas poisons will cause death. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about what a chemical is gonna to have to be in order to somehow disrupt metabolism, disrupt homeostasis. So let's go ahead and let's take a look at some of the classes and classifications of chemicals that have been said to cause a disruption to metabolism. And we'll look at basically three kind of classes here. We'll look at things that we see within some of the uh, fruits and vegetables, as well as some of the, the meat products that we consume, such as nitrates, organophosphates, and glyphosphates. We'll take a look at some of the chemical disruptors that might impact our reproductive functions, such as bisphenols and phytosterols. And then we'll look at some of the sweetening agents that we use in some of our foods that have been purported or reported to impact homeostasis as either a metabolic disruptor, an endocrine disruptor, or a toxin. And that includes high fructose syrups, as well as the artificial sweeteners. What is being said about all of these classes of chemicals? Because the same thing seems to be said about all of them, that they're somehow, quote unquote, dangerous to human health. And they're dangerous to human health because for some, somehow, 
all of them are going to cause obesity. All of them are going to somehow cause cancers. All of them are somehow going to cause nervous system issues. Some, but not all of them, are going to cause some sort of early puberty. The early puberty thing is a misnomer, and it's a misnomer based off of uh, misunderstanding of statistical normalities in the ability to look at populations as a whole. And we'll talk about that. We've talked about that on a couple of the YouTube videos as it relates to reproductive physiology and puberty. And we'll talk a little bit about early puberty issues with hormones in the foods in subsequent talks here. There's also this idea that somehow all of them are going to cause cardiovascular disease. And then the way in which they're all going to be able to do this is either by functioning as an endocrine disruptor or as a metabolic disruptor or some combination of the two. Now, the last one that is being levied against a lot of these is that somehow they're going to cause liver issues, in particular, non-alcoholic fatty acid liver syndrome. Now, that non-alcoholic fatty acid liver syndrome goes hand in hand with the obesity over fatness issues, where when we have obesity over, over fatness issues, we almost always see some sort of liver disease issues, in particular the non-alcoholic liver disease issues that can lead to cirrhosis of the liver. So let's start off by talking about some of these. And the first one we'll talk about are nitrates. Some of the health issues that we see with nitrates come about due to blood pressure dysregulation, due to nitrous oxide exposures. So what ends up happening is that metabolically, the, the nitrates that we can consume from some of the processed meats, and so we'll, we'll get nitrates from processed meats. We can see nitrates in some of the fertilizing agents if we don't wash off the fertilizing agents uh, from the uh, fruits and vegetables that we consume. What the body will do is it will take the, these chemicals, these nitrates, and it will convert them into nitrous oxide. NO is the chemical symbol for, for nitrous oxide. And what nitrous oxide is, is it's a vasodilator. It causes the blood vessels to increase the diameter. The increase in diameter of the blood vessel causes a reduction in blood pressure. And the body doesn't want to have these drastic changes in blood pressure. And so when we have high nitrate exposure leading to high amounts of nitrous oxide being produced, is that the body will somehow adapt itself to this exposure and that exposure causes a dysregulation of blood pressure where we can have wide swings of blood pressure, which is where we have to be careful consuming large amounts of nitrates if we happen to have any type of of known cardiovascular issue. Another thing that happens with increased consumption of nitrates is an issue with hemoglobin production, where we get an anemic issue due to methylmoglobin. So the, the ends up happening is so the hemoglobin will be methylated, and that methylation within the hemoglobin will lead to an anemic issue that can take place. 
where we don't get the correct type of hemoglobin forming. And because we don't have the correct type of hemoglobin forming, we don't get the correct amount of oxygen carrying and transportation through the body, which leads to anemia and anemic issues. We will also see a reduction or can see a reduction in the amount of our RBCs, our red blood cells, our erythrocytes scientifically, due to the incorrect amount and types of hemoglobin being formed. Now, this is where we see issues with nitrate consumption and cancers, in particular colorectal cancers, with nitrous amines being formed when nitrites are cooked at very high temperatures for long periods of time, where when the, the nitrates are cooked for long periods of time at high temperature, they form a secondary compound known as a nitrous amine. And the nitrous amine has been shown to have a carcinogenic effect. So those are some of the, the metabolic issues that can come about from nitrates consumptions. We also have some physiological metabolic functions that are gonna come about from organophosphate exposures, such as reduction in an enzyme necessary to break apart a neurotransmitter known as acetylcholine. So what is happening is that the organophosphate is gonna block an enzyme known as acetylcholine esterase. And what acetylcholine esterase does is it breaks apart acetylcholine and we need acetylcholine in order to regulate both skeletal muscle functions as well as cardiac muscle function as well as our autonomic nervous system, in particular, the relaxation side of the autonomic nervous system. The organophosphates have been shown to increase ROS accumulation and oxidative stress, oxidative damage in the bodies. It does this predominantly by causing metabolic uh, dysregulation through changing mitochondrial functions. In adipose tissue and in some of the tissues of the body, it's going to block an a enzymatic pathway known as a PPAR. By blocking the PPAR, what it does is it, is it causes a change in the utilization of lipids for metabolic functions, which is where some of the evidence has uh, reported where we can see organophosphates leading to increase in fatness and increase in adipose tissues. Glyphosphates, we see uh, physiologically active ROS accumulation and oxidative stress. We do see some issues with microbes within the intestines having alterations in their metabolism. And there is a correlative linkage between the microbes in our intestines and our overall immune functions and overall level of inflammation, where when we alter the microbe functions within the intestines, we see a change in inflammation and metabolic process within the body, where this alteration in microbe activity due to exposure to the glyphosphates leads to 
the alterations in signals coming away from the microbes that cause some bit of metabolic dysregulation due to increased inflammation triggered by those microbes in the intestines. There is some evidence to support glyphosate interfering with amino acid productions, tyrosine and tryptophan, and their subsequent neurotransmitters that come from tyrosine and from tryptophan. So those are the nitrates, the organophosphates and the glyphosphates. Those are the things that we're gonna see predominantly within our uh, processed foods as well as within fruits and vegetables because we'll use the organophosphates and the glyphosphates in growing fruits and vegetables. And we'll use nitrates. We can use nitrates as fertilizer, but we predict predominantly use the nitrates as a preservative agent within processed meats or cured meats. The other foods or the other chemicals that we can consume within our foods that might impact some of the endocrine functions we'll look at here are things that will mimic estrogen or impact androgen functions. And this is our bisphenols. And the most recognized bisphenol that if you look at are what's referred to as bisphenol A or BPA, if you read any of the labels on any of the uh, packaged products, or if you happen to have any of the uh, plastic water bottles. Bisphenol is a petroleum-based chemical that is used or was used to line some of the uh, aluminum and tin cans that held uh, foods within it and liquids within it. It was also contained within a lot of the plastics that uh, we would use for carrying liquids around. When those containers are heated, bisphenol A can come away from the plastics and can contaminate, and you put quotes around that, uh, the foods and the liquids within the product. And what has been shown is that Bisphenols tend to trigger inflammation responses. They can block androgen signals and they can act as what's referred as an estrogen mimic. That means that they, the chemical nature of the bisphenols look very similar to the steroids. And in particular, steroids along the estrogen lineage of steroids. Coming from plants, we also will consume distinct types of steroids. In this case here, we refer to them as phytosterols. And phytosterols have a kind of a positive and a negative side to them. There is a positive side to them in that a lot of the ferrous phytosterols are going to reduce oxidative stress. They're going to reduce ROS accumulation. And they reduce oxidative stress and ROS accumulation by triggering estrogen activated pathways that will increase the amount of antioxidants being produced and limit the amount of ROS production, reactive oxidative species. 
There is some evidence, however, not a lot of evidence to indicate there's a possible lipolytic effect of phytosterols, an ability to break down lipids, fats that are being stored. However, and I'll get to this when we talk about the caveats to some of these things, it's very difficult to say that it's specifically due to the phytosterol. Because phytosterols are estrogen mimics, they actually have very similar chemical structure to our naturally occurring estrogen. They will block androgen effect if consumed in very high dosage. They have an impact on bone cells, osteocytes, as it relates to both building as well as breaking down of bone. And so we are naturally building and breaking down bone on a daily basis and what's referred to as bone turnover. And what the phytosterols can do is that they can impact the rate at which bone turnover is occurring and how robust, how big those bones are when they are stressed and need to grow during those bone turnover phases. And so if we look at what the uh, bisphenols and what the phytosterols are going to do metabolically is that they can impact reproductive functions. There is a slight link with an increased chance for reproductive related cancers, particularly from the bisphenols. There's an increased risk for neurodegenerative diseases, particularly from the bisphenols. There's an impact on bone mineral densities and bone health. From the phytosterols, there seems to be a possible reduction in atherosclerosis and a slight quote-unquote protective effect on cardiovascular health from the phytosterols. But once again, it's very difficult to say that it's, it's specifically coming from the phytosterols in the diet. Which takes us to the last bit of chemical class that we'll talk about today. And those are the high fructose syrups and the artificial sweeteners. And for both high fructose as well as for artificial sweeteners, we're going to see a change in metabolism. We're going to see a change in metabolism, both within the microbes of the intestines, as well as what we see in the body. For fructose in particular, we know that fructose is going to trigger lipid growth, lipid synthesis, making of new fats, independent of any other signal to make new fats. Fructose because it's gonna change how cells are gonna use glucose and change the way in which cells are gonna be doing lipid synthesis, which is gonna change the way in which adipose cells and immune cells send out signals, will increase inflammation. That inflammation in the liver, in hepatocytes, is what's gonna trigger non-alcoholic fatty acid syndrome coming from the high fructose corn, from the high fructose syrups whether it's high fructose corn syrup or other forms of high fructose uh, foods. From the artificial sweeteners, not only do we have all of those factors coming into play, we also see them 
changing the way in which we're going to uh, synthesize specific fatty acids, which may reduce the essential fatty acids that we need for our metabolism to uh, be in optimal balance. We also see a slight change in physiological pH issues. That change in physiological pH issue has been associated. Once again, there is very limited cause effect linkage with carcinogenic effects coming from artificial sweeteners themselves. There is recently been reported some evidence that uh, there is a genetic regulation that gets altered with exposure to artificial sweeteners that can increase carcinogenic issues by causing methylation, demethylation of proteins within, the, within chromosomes, turning on and turning off enzymes that are associated with uh, the cancer genes, what we refer to as the oncogenes, with both high fructose as well as from artificial sweeteners, more coming from artificial sweeteners than from the high fructose. What is interesting as it relates to food intake and hormone response to food intake is that both high fructose exposure as well as artificial sweetener exposure leads to an alteration of taste sensation from the taste buds within the mouth as well as from secondary taste buds that occur within the intestines as well as within some of the blood vessels going away from the intestines and heading to the liver. The change in function from the sense of taste is going to alter how much hormone is being produced, in particular our insulin and our GLP, as well as other hormones that are related to our feeling of fullness that gets associated with the artificial sweeteners in particular. This is one of the hypotheses that we have that relates to how artificial sweeteners do not directly link with reduction in body mass for those people who consume large amounts of artificial sweeteners. So that's what physiologically is taking place. That is what we have everybody out in the universe saying these things cause and these things do. We know that they have some bit of metabolic disruption, some bit of endocrine disruption. There's not really a lot toxic effect that can't come about from these chemicals in the foods. But what does the science have to say about these things? So what's the take-home message on our nitrates, or organophosphate, and our glyphosates? So the nitrate concern appears to be more based on environmental harm that, can, that comes about from overuse of nitrates in farming as a fertilizing agent than from a health harm issue. There is the linkage that we see with increased cancer risk from chronic intake of the cooked nitrates and an increased risk for anemia, particularly for younger individuals, as well as for very old individuals, as it relates to interference with normal hemoglobin formation. The cancer risks come about not from single exposures or limited exposure, but from chronic exposure 
to those quick nitrates at very high temperatures and for prolonged cook times, which means that you can reduce that relative risk for the cooked nitrates by cooking foods for less time or cooking foods at lower temperatures. For the organophosphates, we do tend to see a both a metabolic as well as an endocrine disrupting effect coming about from the organophosphates. The glyphosphates, there is limited evidence and the models that show effects are kind of questionable in terms of do we have a real life effect based off of how we're consuming the foods that have been exposed to the glyphosphates. The take home message on the bisphenols and the phytosterols is that we may see an impact on reproductive functions due to those chemicals acting as estrogen mimics. Bisphenols may increase the risk for developing reproductive cancers because of their impact on mitochondria and on ROS and oxidative stress. We may see an increased risk for neurodegenerative disease. Phytosterols may impact our bone mineral densities, particularly with prolonged exposure to phytosterols, which can become problematic if my source of protein is predominantly going to be from soy, as soy tends to have a higher density of phytosterols in it relative to other sources of plant proteins. Phytosterols at low dosage may reduce reactive oxidative species and reduce my risk for, for cardiovascular disease, but that's only at low dose. With higher doses of phytosterols, we tend not to see those impacts, those effects. For the high fructose syrups and for the artificial sweeteners, we have a possible impact on metabolic disruption starting with the microbes and spreading into the body itself. There is a correlation with increased fatness and overfatness and the overfatness metabolic issues coming about from consumption of foods that have high fructose or artificial sweeteners within it. Due to increased inflammation, ROS and oxidative stress that can come about from cells trying to metabolize the high fructose and or the artificial sweeteners. There is an increased risk for cardiovascular disease due to the ROS and oxidative stress, as well as the inflammation that takes place. Now, having said all that, there is a caveat to all of this. Most of the evidence that we have is coming from animal model and from cell studies. And what we have to remember is that for the animal models and for the cell studies, the animals are being exposed to the chemicals in a different nature than how humans, how we get exposed to those chemicals. And because the exposure is different and because of the way in which animal physiology and human physiology is slightly different, is not really a one-to-one -one relationship that takes place. Where we might see these evidence taking place within animal models that may not hold true in the long term for humans. 
for cells, cells tend to act differently when they're in a lab culture, when they're in test tubes and when they're in petri dishes, the things that we use to grow cells in the labs versus when they're linked with all of the other cells in the body, being exposed to all of the other hormones and all the other signals that we have in the body. The other caveat that we have to remember is that with human health, it's very difficult to indicate a single factor will cause any specific disease to take place. There's too many cogs within the machine spinning to say that it is a specific thing that's causing one cog to spin off when all of the cogs are interwoven with each other to allow for the machine to run properly. And so when we start looking at all of the studies out there, all of the news reports out there that say, oh, we have this chemical that's gonna cause this cancer, or we have this chemical that's gonna cause this disruption to our metabolism, or we're gonna have this chemical that's gonna cause this disruption to this hormone, or this chemical is gonna cause this to take place. We have to take a step back and realize that it may not be just that one thing, but a whole host of things where that one chemical may be linked to other behavioral things that cause the health issues to come about. Well, thanks for listening. This is just the introduction to a, a whole host of discussions looking at chemical disruptors to metabolism. Hopefully you got a couple of new ideas coming away from here and please stay tuned as we will be uh, discussing hormones in our foods and the fact that it's not as advertised as what we think it is.